This episode is brought to you by Bumble. So you want to find someone you're compatible with, specifically someone who's ready for a serious connection, totally open to having kids in the future, is a tall rock climbing Libra, and loves rom-coms with vegan pizzas on Tuesdays just as much as you do. Bumble knows that you know exactly what's right for you. So whatever it is you're looking for, Bumble's features can help you find it. Date now on Bumble. So I think I need to help everybody come down a little bit and give you some good news. I have been, of course, talking to a lot of people who are sending their kids back to school. Also, a lot of parents sending their kids off to college. And what I want to talk about today, Robin, is this really elevated emotional state that people are in. You know, I talk about worry. I talk about anxiety. But it's kind of reached another level. Welcome to Fluster Clucks with Lynn Lyons, where we talk about worry and other big feelings in parenting. I'm your co-host, Robin. I'm Lynn's sister-in-law, and I'm here to ask your questions. And I'm Lynn Lyons. I'm an anxiety expert, speaker, mom, and author, and I've been a therapist for over 30 years. Parenting can be a Fluster Clucks, and I'm here to help you find your way. So I want to talk about what's going on with fear, because I am hearing parents more than just worried, more than just anxious. I am hearing them afraid. I am hearing parents use the word terrified. So I've got some good news. I think I've got some optimistic news to help people sort of just take it down a notch. You feel like the families in your practice that you're talking to regularly, they're just kind of at a whole new level of worry that you've seen before? Yeah. And it's not even just the families that I'm talking to. It's just like friends and things I'm seeing on social media, like Facebook, going to schools. You know, I talk to a lot of teachers and stuff, but a lot of the teachers are parents. So they're talking to me about their kids. I just want to say like, okay, everybody, I know we've been through a tough time. We need to hit a little bit of a reset button. I just want to tell you some things that are going to help you be okay. Because it's really contagious. I mean, that's one of the things that's really happening too. The level of language, the level, the, the vocabulary that people are using it is up there. Tell us how to reset. We need it. Okay. I've been doing some research and looking up some other stuff because I'm doing some writing and things. So first thing I want to talk to you about, and I've come across some things that I think are really helpful. We have talked a lot and people have heard a lot about ACEs. So what that stands for, A-C-E, is Adverse Childhood Experiences. And this research about adverse childhood experiences has been really helpful because in terms of dealing with trauma, about what's going on with kids, to me, it really is great because it talks about life experiences, it talks about relationships, it talks about the things that happen to kids rather than all of that sort of diagnostic language that I think is not so helpful at times. This is a way to just say we are human beings and above all, we are social and emotional creatures. But there's something else and I actually wasn't familiar with this term, so I was delighted to come across it. But there's something else called positive childhood experiences. What do you know? So positive childhood experiences really look at the things that sustain us, the things that even as we move into adulthood, very much decrease the likelihood of depression in adulthood and the likelihood of developing other mental health issues. 
And so I think what I really want to tell parents right now is what this research shows is that positive childhood experiences do great things to offset adverse childhood experiences. And we may say right now, look, our kids have been through a lot of adverse childhood experiences because of the pandemic, because of everything that's happened. People have lost loved ones. Their lives have been so disrupted. There's a lot of stuff going on. So I want to talk about positive childhood experiences. And there are seven of them that they list, seven of them. And so when they're doing this research, they say to the adults that they're looking at, list how many of these you experienced as a child. Okay? There's seven. I'm just going to go through it. And as you listen to me list these off, parents, think about how you're doing with these in your family. I think it's going to make you feel better. Ready? Here we go. Number one, you felt able to talk to your family about your feelings. That's number one. You felt that your family stood by you during difficult times. You enjoyed participating in community traditions. You felt a sense of belonging in high school, not including those who did not attend school or were homeschool. That was the one I was like, felt a sense of belonging in high school, which I did. But, you know, some of us will think back like, hmm. Yeah, that one's a tricky one. That's a tricky one for a lot of people. Because belonging is so subjective. Yes. Everyone always assumes other people are part of a party that they aren't in that age group. Yep. So that's a little bit of a tricky one. But you don't have to have all seven. So this isn't an all or nothing thing. If you can check off a few of these, you're you're good. Felt supported by friends, had at least two non-parent adults who took a genuine interest in them, and felt safe and protected by an adult in their home. So when you look at those seven things, and as you're thinking about your children right now, as you're thinking about what you can offer your children right now, those are things that if you are a loving, caring parent, you're probably doing okay with those things. You're probably offering your kids those things. You can't create a sense of belonging in high school if you've got a 15-year-old, but think of all of the ways in which we as adults can provide those positive childhood experiences to our kids. You know what I thought was very interesting was that it combined sense of belonging in high school, but it also talked about the participation in community tradition. Yep. And that's one of the things that parents can do. Say you've got kids that aren't within the norm of Mm -hmm. high school. They're not the football players and the cheerleaders, but they're into like Dungeons and Dragons, for Mm -hmm. example. There could be some sort of annual Dungeons and Dragons convention that that family participates in, where that community is one that you have self-selected, where your children feel that they're very much a part of that center. Right. Right. I can think of so many different examples of families I know who find these other communities. It could be non profits they get involved with. It could be so many hobbies and interests. I think that's a great way to fight that horrible thing of who feels like they really belong in high school, right? Right. Belong to what? I mean, that's that's (laughs) always the issue. I always sort of laugh to myself, particularly when I'm talking to middle schoolers and they're like, oh, I hate the popular girls. And I say to them, do you know what the word popular means? And then there's that wonderful writer, I forget her name, but she talks about popular as meaning powerful, this sense of belonging and how do we create that for our kids and how do we have traditions? 
in Concord, where I live, they have this walk for the animals. And it's this tradition every year where it's a fundraising walk and it's for the SPCA. And people bring their dogs and everybody takes their, it's just such a nice thing. Everybody goes on a walk with their animals. There's a bike ride that happens for our cancer center in Concord that happens every year. I see the signs up go up every August about this group bike ride. So there are all of these ways that you can have that feeling of connection and belonging in your community. That's a great way to think about that. Yeah. We even as adults in our own family, we participate as a family in a 4th of July event every year. Mm Mm-hmm. That's a wonderful tradition. I know. That we do. And it gives us such a a bedrock of memories for our family. Yep. So, right. We have to seek that kind of community in a variety of places. So that no, the, the number one here, right, felt able to talk to their family about feelings. Just we've talked about that a lot. We have a lot of past episodes about emotional literacy and emotional management, the ability for kids to express their feelings, to be able to know what they're feeling and put it into words or put it into play. You gave me the mantra at the beginning of the pandemic, and you say this, you say this even before the pandemic, but but every parent when a child early on starts describing their feelings, you reply, well, of course you feel that way. Of course you feel that way. Yeah, because lots of times we want to get in there and we want to say like, oh, it's not so bad or, oh, that's nothing to worry about or, oh, I don't understand why you're so upset about that. And to be able to say, of course you feel that way. Now let's talk about how we're going to react or what we want to do about it. I just think that's such a a key thing. You know, number one on the list, able to talk about feelings. Which also means that parents have a responsibility of modeling mm-hmm. what talking about feelings looks like. That's I mean, right. and, and that's the thing that we're always working on with that emotional management. Yep. The thing about this list, as I look at it, is that virtually every single one of these seven items, and I'm looking at it now, is there one that doesn't fit into this? No, it doesn't actually. Every single one is about connection. Every single one on this list is about a connection to another human being. And so if I may just give everybody a reminder about this idea of achievement culture, parents say to me, well, I just want her to be happy. And if she gets into the right school or if she gets good grades or as long as she does her best, none of those statements have to do with connection to other human beings. I mean, this is powerful stuff. These are the qualities that offset Things like divorce, trauma, losing a parent, having a severe medical illness, those are the things that are on the adverse childhood experience scale. And what this research found is that even if you've got a lot of ACEs, if you score high on the positive childhood experiences scale, it absolutely mitigates and even prevents the development of later problems with your emotional health. That's powerful stuff. I think about that from the perspective of the parents who hear this. They know that their children have had a lot of ACEs that were beyond their own control. Mm-hmm. And then you can feel very powerless sometimes as a parent when That's right. the external world shows up on your doorstep and affects your family. Yep. But it is really good news to hear that with intention, there are so many things that the parent does have positive power about. Right. It really makes a difference. It's funny because the the authors write in this article that we want to support a definition of health 
emphasizing that health is more than the absence of disease or adversity, right? So it's, it's not about the absence of adversity. It's about the conscious creation of connection, the conscious support of connection. And I think that's such a great point you make, Robin, because things happen, right? Things happen that aren't in our control, but all of these things are things that we as parents can support other than having a sense of belonging in high school. That's a tough one. But these feeling supported, feeling protected, feeling like your family is standing by you, feeling like your feelings are being validated and listened to. Those are all active things that we do, even in the face of difficult times. Robin and I travel a lot. And part of traveling is that you learn that you have to compromise, right? So maybe you're not going to get the best seat on the plane. Well, you know where you shouldn't compromise? You shouldn't compromise with your health care. When it comes to your health, there's no compromising, everybody. Don't go back to that one doctor who didn't really pay attention to you, who rushed you through your appointments. Check out ZocDoc. This is the place where you can find and book doctors who will make you feel comfortable, listen to you, and prioritize your health. And you can search by location, availability, insurance. So literally no compromises here. ZocDoc is a free app and website where you can search and compare highly rated in-network doctors near you and instantly book appointments with them online. Once you find the doc you want, you can book them immediately. You don't have to wait. You don't have to be on hold with a receptionist. These doctors all have verified reviews from real patients. So the typical wait time to see a doctor booked on ZocDoc is just between 24 and 72 hours. That's it. You can even score same-day appointments. I have two young adult sons. They are always needing something, right? We've had broken elbows. We've had tonsils. We've had this. We've had that. If I were a young person, if I were a parent trying to help my young person find a doctor, this is what I would use. So Go to ZocDoc.com slash Fluster and download the ZocDoc app for free. Then find and book a top-rated doctor today. That's Z-O-C-D-O-C dot com slash Fluster. ZocDoc.com slash Fluster. Lumen is the world's first handheld metabolic coach. It's a device that measures your metabolism through your breath, and on the app, it lets you know if you are burning fat or carbs, and it gives you a tailored guidance to improve your nutrition, workouts, sleep, and even stress management. So how Lumen works is that you breathe into the Lumen device first thing in the morning, and you'll know what's going on with your metabolism, whether you're burning mostly fat or carbs. And then Lumen gives you a personalized nutrition plan for that day based on your measurements. You can also breathe into it before and after workouts and meals, so you know exactly what's going on in your body in real time. And Lumen will give you tips to keep you on top of your health game. I love the extra data that I'm getting about my health right now. Because for many women of my age, as we are going through a long chapter of hormone changes, Lumen's helping me use my body's data to make the best choices. So your metabolism is your body's engine. 
It's how your body turns the food you eat into the fuel that keeps you going. And because your metabolism is at the center of everything your body does, optimal metabolic health translates to a bunch of benefits, including easier weight management, improved energy levels, and better sleep, which is key. So Lumen gives you recommendations to improve your metabolic health. So what is metabolic flexibility and why should you care? Well, the key to metabolic health is something called metabolic flexibility. We love flexibility at Fluster Clucks, and that's where Lumen really shines. It refers to your body's ability to efficiently switch between using different fuel sources like carbs and fats, and there are preferred times to use each, and how well you can switch places you on the metabolic flexibility spectrum. So after getting to know you through your breath, Lumen gives you a metabolic flex score that you can track and improve upon. So if you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fluster to get $100 off Lumen. That's L-U-M-E-N-D-O-T-M-E. And use Fluster at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. You know, you've been talking about emotional management since the beginning of the pandemic. Mm-hmm. You can start with episode three listeners, which is uh, flattening our own emotional curve. I just want to connect the dots for people mm-hmm. who haven't been listening since the beginning, because when you talk about connection and you talk about emotional management, they're together because when we're able to manage our emotions, when we're able to allow other people's emotions to be a part of the conversation, when we don't always center our own anger, worry, or sadness freakouts, mm-hmm. when we're in those states, you're not connecting with somebody else. Right. And many parents are overwhelmed by their anger. They're overwhelmed by their irritation. They're Mm -hmm. overwhelmed by their grief. They're overwhelmed by so many things. And the work is on us to Mm -hmm. really figure out how do I manage these really big feelings? And that's the essence of what this podcast is about. That's right. It really is about listening to where your children find their connection. Because I think sometimes we decide that would be a really good experience or that's really important. You know, we do this this resume building with kids and connection shows up in places sometimes that we didn't have on our agenda. I mean, I was just talking to this uh, high school student and she got a summer job working in a restaurant, but she has found this connection with the people that she works with. Most of them are older than she is. This is her first job. And she loved it because of the connection that she felt. And then the school year is starting. And so her parents said, you know, you really can't continue this job during the school year because you have school and you've got your sports and you've got this and you've got that. And she came undone because she felt like they weren't getting how important the connection was. So she did a really good job of explaining that to them. And now they're thinking differently about it. And I did some explaining too. But it was such an unlikely place for her to find connection. You know, working in a pizza joint. After the last few years, she absolutely feels joy when she goes into work at the pizza place, which is kind of interesting. We're talking back about the high school thing. I always worked in high school. Mm -hmm. One of my best friends, she also had a job. Mm -hmm. And a lot of people didn't work in high school, but we were really into our jobs. Mm -hmm. And one of the benefits of having another job to go to after school was that there was this 
hierarchy and rules and customs in high school that you left in high school. It was really healthy as a 16 and 17 year old for me to then go and work with a bunch of people who knew nothing about the rules and what was cool and what was the thing at my school. And I had a great time with those friends that I made at that job. Mm -hmm. Again, that's looking for other communities outside of school is so healthy. Yeah, that's such a good point. How do we help kids connect outside of that school environment and outside of even the, the sort of normal ideas that we have in our head about what they're supposed to participate in or what connection means, right? Oh, so they have to be on the soccer team or they have to do this or they have to do that. Just broadening your perspective. Connection is connection. There's another article too, which also says good things. So this is an article I came across that was talking about looking at all of the data that has been gathered during the pandemic about mental health. And the article starts off, it was in the Atlantic. So let me just say the article about the positive childhood experiences was written in September of 2019. This research came out. So this was pre-pandemic. This article that I'm talking about, this came out just last month. What it talked about in the article was how the idea that we are going into a mental health crisis and that everybody is going to fall apart and that this is really a disaster to our mental health, they say that announcement began as soon as the pandemic began that people started to really panic about what this was going to do to our mental health. And I will tell you that that's been a consistent message that I have heard since the beginning of the pandemic from all sorts of sources. Everybody brace yourself. This is going to be awful. And at the beginning of the pandemic, according to the research, it was pretty bad. So during the first few months when we we're all sort of reeling and trying to figure out how to manage things that a lot of people reported increased rates and increased experiences of anxiety and depression. People were experiencing loneliness. But then they looked at the research over time and they looked at it across the world. And people said the research they were saying, well, maybe you're just looking at the rich, stable countries in the world. So they had resources. Nope. They looked at the whole world. They looked at all sorts of different groups of people and all sorts of different categories. And what they found was that what they refer to as a psychological immune system was better than everybody would have predicted. In general, people were able to be more resilient, to make more connections, to be able to use what are known cognitive abilities that actually allow people to make the best out of terrible situations. And over time, after that initial real sort of, you know, what the heck is going on here, people started to do better. Rates of suicide actually went down. They did identify um, women and parents of young children as taking the biggest hit, which certainly makes sense, but that imagining what was going to happen predicting what was going to happen, anticipating what was going to happen was worse than when people actually had to manage it. I I just want to give you another little piece of optimism, another reason for you to just exhale a little bit. We did better than you are hearing 
in a lot of the news reports and a lot of those clickbait headlines. In general, resilience is there and psychological immunity is there. Doesn't mean that every person did great, but as a whole, the results are better than perhaps you're getting that you're you're led to believe. Well, not to be snarky, but the one thing I would want to push back on is um, half the population got hit harder, right? Like women did get hit harder. And the article isn't saying like everybody, look, we were fine. I mean, they're they're absolutely recognizing that there was a lot of devastation in this. But what it's saying is resilience and psychological immunity doesn't mean that everything went great. It means that we got through it better than people predicted. That's a good thing to to think about. I am not saying at all that it wasn't devastating and traumatic and difficult for many, many people. And as I said, particularly people who parents of young children. And the other thing we know from the research about the depression and anxiety stats is that people who were struggling before got worse, right? So the cracks became chasms. But what it's saying as they look at the research is that people were able to find ways to get through it in ways that you're probably not hearing very much about. So what I'm hearing you say then is that if you had issues prior to the pandemic, it is reasonable to assume that things were harder. I'm just thinking of the people who are listening who had real struggles with anxiety in their families before the pandemic, and they probably didn't think things got any easier. But collectively, the people who you know were sort of doing okay, they were able to respond with resilience and adapt and probably didn't experience a lot of bruising in the last year. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And and basically what the research was saying is that that people people are more resilient than they know that they are. So the anticipation, and, and I guess one of the things to, to think about if we put this in the context of anxiety and worry is remember that anxiety, when we're, when we're worrying about something, we're absolutely projecting into the future and we're imagining the worst case scenario. And the imagining of it and the creating of the narrative of it is often worse than when it actually happens. Very simple example would be kids that are afraid of throwing up just had this happen in my office recently, not in my office, didn't throw up in my office, but a little kid who was afraid of throwing up who got a stomach bug. And the parents were like, he handled it really well. And that's often the case is that is that our anticipation of something, our worry about something is worse or scarier than our actual ability to manage it when it shows up. Absolutely. Because when we are fearing something in the abstract, there are no limits to how scary it could be. And I think that when we're fearing something in the abstract, we also lose track of our skills, our supports, the ways that we're going to get through it. You know, I had a, a good friend go through cancer during the pandemic and it was horrible. I mean, you know, she was the, the treatment and everything was just horrible. But I bet if I talked to her about it now, she she wasn't spending a lot of time thinking that she was going to get diagnosed with cancer before this. And then when it showed up, she just she just had to move through it. She just right. had to handle it. Right. And as you always say, it's breaking it up into parts. That's there was right. like a Sesame Street or Electric Company. I don't know who did this, but there was a cancer scare in my uh, group of friends. 
and and you could think of that. Remember when it would show like the giant word, like mm-hmm. crushing something. Yes. So it's like the giant word, the the block letters of cancer, and then yeah. like here's this mom underneath these letters. Yeah, that's how we think about these yeah. things. Yeah. But it's it's like, but if in fact this is a cancer diagnosis, just like with your friend, these are all of the initial steps that you take in sequence to get through it. You right. break it up into parts, right? And it is manageable. But that big abstract word is going to be far more intense. Right. And I think that's kind of where things are now. Yes. Is that there are these big abstract words and people are frightened and people are in their heads and they're creating these narratives. And I just want to say, I mean, I just want to give the message that you you are resilient in a way that perhaps you've discovered during this pandemic. Resilience doesn't mean that it was great. Resilience doesn't mean that it was easy, but it means that people surprise themselves with their ability to get through things. And that ability to get through things gets lost when we're just in our heads creating the story about it. I was doing a school thing and the superintendent said, now let's just all remember that we got our whole school system online within three to four days. So don't tell me that you guys need four months to put this in place. And I was like, okay, right? I mean, they did better than they thought they could do. In the abstract, if we had said, okay, so all schools in the United States are going to go online or just say a state says, you know, New Hampshire says, we're going to put all schools online. It would take five years to come up with a plan because they're thinking about it in the abstract. So just being able to say to yourself, I don't know exactly what's going to happen, but perhaps my family, perhaps I have more skills actually handling a problem than when I'm sitting here just imagining it. And that's what this article talks about. Let me just quote this. This is from the article. Anticipating and imagining what might happen is worse than when it actually does happen. Human beings possess what researchers call a psychological immune system, a host of cognitive abilities that enable us to make the best of even the worst situation. That's an important thing for us to remember as we move through this. My whole point today is to actually say, I am hearing fear, terror, panic, and I just want you guys to know that you are probably doing better than you think you're doing. You probably are. It's going to be bumpy, but there are things that we have inside of us and ways that we can connect that are going to help us get through this. If you are a mom who's trying to keep your calendar organized, keep your family's appointments where they need to be, then I'll tell you, the Skylight Calendar is a product that you ought to check out. You know how it is. Running a household can be pure chaos and it can be so stressful. This is why you need to check out the Skylight Calendar. It is going to make your life easier, mom. It really is. The Skylight Calendar is a smart touchscreen calendar and organizer for all your chores, groceries, to-do lists and a great way to manage appointments to make sure they never overlap and they're never missed. It helps keep busy households on track so families can get time back for moments that really matter. The Skylight Calendar is so easy to use and to set up. It's not going to frustrate you. You're going to be able to get it going within minutes. It syncs events from other family calendars, including Google, Apple, Outlook, you can add events directly using the touch screen or with the free Skylight mobile app. 
updates to linked calendars will automatically appear on the Skylight calendar at home. So no more worrying that you guys are going to forget something. No more cluttered paper calendars. It shows all family events together in one spot. The events are color-coded, so you can easily see what everyone has going on each week. When the calendar's not in use, you can turn it into a digital picture frame. It's 100% satisfaction guaranteed. If you don't love the Skylight calendar, you'll receive a full refund. They offer a 120-day money-back guarantee and free returns. You can't beat it. I think the feature that I love most is the collaborative way we can all add to the grocery list. And then when I'm ready to place an online order, whether I'm at home or my office, I have that list and there's no more items that we forget. So as a special time-limited offer for our listeners, get 15% off your purchase of a Skylight calendar when you go to skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. That's S-K-Y-L-I-G-H-T-C-A-L dot com slash flusterclucks. Mother's Day is coming right up. So order today to get 15% off your purchase at skylightcal.com slash flusterclucks. Picture the thing that you've always wanted to learn and now picture that you're learning it from the person who's literally the best in the world at it. It's fantastic, and that's what you get with Masterclass. I recently listened to Matthew Walker's talk on sleep and the importance of consistency with sleep. I loved Bobby Brown's Masterclass, gave me all these tips about putting on makeup because, you know, I'm in front of a camera sometimes and I want to look good, and Bobby was such a big help. So this year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Like I actually put on makeup the way that Bobby Brown taught me how to put on makeup. This year, learn from the best to become your best with Masterclass. Don't just talk about improving. Masterclass actually helps you do it. Masterclass offers over 180 instructors. So whether you want to master negotiation with Chris Voss, think like a boss with Martha Stewart, or maybe you want to learn how to just make your makeup look better with Bobby Brown or sleep better with Matthew Walker, with Masterclass, you get unlimited access to intimate one-on-one classes with the world's best. I loved it. There are over 200 classes to pick from. New classes are added every single month, like a class that talks about your gut health. So many interesting things to learn. So every new membership comes with a 30-day money-back guarantee, so there's absolutely no risk. Right now, our listeners will get an additional 15% off an annual membership at masterclass.com slash Fluster. Get 15% off right now at masterclass.com slash fluster. Masterclass.com slash fluster. I love this phrase, the psychological immune system. I know it's great. And when I think of the pieces that probably support a strong psychological immune system. I'm thinking of connection at the top of the list. Yep. I'm thinking of resilience and flexibility, problem solving, 
And mm-hmm. I'm thinking of autonomy. And mm. interestingly, for those listeners who know your stuff, this list is really familiar. Yep. And this is what I was trying to say it all comes back to. All of those all of those emotional skills are what you have breached for years that when our children have these traits, it is the best defense against mental health disorders. Right. That's what I was trying to make the point before too. We as parents have power here, like huge power. Well, that's what I love when the article said, the first article I was talking about, you made mention of it also, is that things happen, like we're not in control of a lot of things. And so when we talk about happiness means that everything has to go the right way, or that our children are doing well if they don't have bad experiences, that's not the way to think about it. Because things happen, bad things happen. Things don't go the way that you want them to go. And it's really not about removing things to create happiness. It's about adding things to create connection. That's where the buffer is. That's where the mental health buffers are. When we have those skills that you listed, right? Autonomy and flexibility and connection. We are giving our kids the skills they need to step into life rather than stepping in and trying to prevent bad things from happening and remove our kids from situations. And that's the big difference. You know, I, I mean, that's the, that's the thing I talk about all the time with schools. If we put accommodations in place that remove your child, we're not allowing them to build the skills they need for anxiety. It's about equipping kids with the skills they need so that they can handle what life throws at them, not saying, oh, we have to take away this or prevent this, or we can't let them experience this, because you don't have a lot of control over that. So sort of popped into my head is I'm imagining the listener who has either a partner or one of the children in the family in a more emotionally vulnerable place than the others. Mm-hmm. Because I'm sure you see that in your practice all the time. Mm-hmm. If you have one child or even your your partner who is not necessarily helping you model what you want, what do you want to say to that parent who's really trying to steer the ship for the whole family? I think, and I've said this so many times, you've just got to talk openly about what you're trying to do. And so a lot of times with everyone in the family, with everyone in the family, you've got to talk openly about what you're trying to do and what you hope to do. And so this is where communication, if you've got a partner, I mean, say somebody's going through a really rough time, say you've got one person in the family who's really depressed. Maybe there's somebody, maybe there's a, you've got one child that's really struggling with addiction. Maybe you've got a child who's got a lot of anxiety and is having a difficult time going into school. It's okay for all members of the family to just talk openly about the fact that we're having a tough time and this is how we're going to support each other. And these are the feelings that we have about this. And it's totally fine that you're annoyed that this is going on or you're, you know, even you're angry that this child is getting so much attention. Let's talk about how we're going to create positive connection. And if there is a family that's going through a rough time as a parent, if you're the parent trying to steer the ship and you've got a partner or you've got one child that's really struggling, pay attention to the connections that your other children need. And you may not be the only person who's going to be in that child's life right now that's going to provide them with that connection, with that buoyancy, right? One of the things that it said is that at least two non-parent adults who took a genuine interest in the child. 
So it's okay for you to say, okay, I'm overwhelmed because I'm dealing with this right now, or I've got to put a lot of attention to figure out how to deal with this problem right now. And I'm going to make sure that I have other connections and that my children have other connections so it doesn't all fall on my shoulders. It's really okay to say that. It's really okay to ask for help and to say, I need, my kids need some support right now. My kids need some extra connection and figure out how you're going to provide that. That's an active step that you can take. Do you think that sometimes families come into your office because they have one child who anxiety is a very big issue that is really limiting his or her life, Mm -hmm. but the parents have tried to kind of isolate the treatment of it Mm -hmm. and not bring the whole family in? All the time. Well, and and this is oftentimes the kid, the the child will come in and maybe the child's been in therapy before and the child's been in therapy by themselves and the parents haven't even been included and the other siblings haven't been included. Blows my mind. I say it all the time. I can't understand why you would treat an eight-year-old or a 10-year-old or a 12-year-old with anxiety and not have the parents be a part of the process. That's just, I, I, truly, it just, it just astounds me. Okay, well, unpack that. Why does it astound you? Why is that not a good idea? It astounds me because uh, if, if we look at everything that I just talked about in terms of positive childhood experiences, parents are there for one as I've talked about many times, oftentimes one of the parents is struggling with anxiety too because this thing doesn't show up in a vacuum. And so they need the information. It's a, it's a connected, generational, relational problem. And if parents don't have the information they need, if there isn't somebody there to say, I think this might be making the anxiety worse, or I understand that you're trying to protect them, but let's build this skill instead, right? Anxious families often come in and they are all about making things smaller. The world has gotten smaller. They've tried to remove things. They've tried to accommodate. They've tried to avoid. And my goal is always to, how do we add things back in? And that includes family members. So why am I going to take somebody who's isolated from their world because of their anxiety and just mirror the disorder by isolating them more from their siblings or their parents or their peers. The more we do it as a community, as a family, as a larger system, the more we're doing the opposite of what the anxiety demands. So many families want to seek treatment for their anxious child. Mm -hmm. And you are saying, no, we have a family system here and we have to approach this together. Right. When is therapy for the individual child or teen within your opinion, you know, the appropriate path? Because I'm sure there are exceptions. Yeah, yeah. So as a child gets older, I see a lot of 16, 17, 18 up. I see them individually. I have good relationships with their parents. I talk to their parents, but the, you know, I I always joke, if you can drive to your appointment by yourself, you can come to your appointment by yourself. So when you get to be that age where you're making decisions for yourself, and sometimes I need to create more autonomy. So I'm going to tell the parents that they need to step back, but I'm, I'm going to tell the parents that like, that's part of the treatment. So the older teenagers are absolutely coming to appointments by themselves for sure. There are some situations in which I will see the parents separately from the child because there are things that I want to talk to the parents about, not in the presence of the child. But most of the time for younger kids, I'm going to include the parents. Sometimes I can't include both parents. Maybe there's one parent who is unavailable for some reason because of their own issues, because there's been a horrible divorce, because there's some substance abuse going on. But for older kids, it's going to be individual, but we're going to include the parents. 
And I'm not going to talk to the teenager about their lives in the absence of putting it in the context of their family and where they came from and how to communicate better. Lots of times teenagers want to talk about, well, how can I talk to my parents about this? So if you had your way and Lynn had the magic wand, Mm -hmm. you would really wish that most families, when they recognize that worry is an issue with one of their children, they as a family seek the treatment because it's a family issue and it's also a family solution. Correct. That's exactly right. It's a family issue and it's a family solution. Very rarely, particularly with anxiety, very rarely does the solution lie in separating. The solution lies in connecting and talking and feeling supported and helping a family navigate through something that's very difficult. I think if we if we go back to what parents have heard a lot in the news and this mental health crisis and how this is so awful for our teenagers and they're falling apart. I think a lot of parents have been really scared that when they saw their teenager exhibiting some behaviors, they started to panic. They started thinking, I'm losing my child and this is their irreparable harm is happening. And so I just want parents to know that as they were going through this, as kids were going through this, they have a lot of resilience, and that there are things that you can actively do. It's not helpful for parents to be guided by their fear at this point. That leads to more isolation, and it it leads to a lot of sort of abdication of sort of the role of the parent as being that supportive person in the house. As long as we're talking about the mental health and the psychological immune system, Mm -hmm. We really need to talk. So if you as a family feel like you've weathered this pretty well and you're still interested in listening because you're thinking about prevention and continuing to steer your ship through smooth waters, the two-part episodes at the beginning of the year, can you vaccinate your children against anxiety and depression? That's in fact all of these sort of parental strategies that are preventative, that how as a family, can you basically coming back to that article, here are Mm -hmm. all of these positive child experiences. Well, how do you get there? And what does that look Mm -hmm. like? And so Mm -hmm. we unpack that in those episodes that can be very helpful to frankly, to re listen to because I, I found those episodes to be somewhat of a game changer in what we talk about as in my own family. Mm -hmm. And now we talk about emotional patterns and emotional experiences of characters and movies and TV that we watch together. Mm -hmm. We normalize talking about emotions all the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And I I don't think I would have proactively done that before. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. (laughs) (laughs) No, I mean, truly, like I just, I, I love hearing you say that. I love hearing you... I love hearing you articulate that. It's it's creating that sense of belonging and thinking about this, you know, if I had to sort of leave you with kind of one thing to carry around inside your head, parents, it's thinking about how you can add positive things rather than be fearful of negative things. How are you going to add in the positive rather than be so fearful that you have to protect and take away and what's being taken away from your kids. That mindset, that that mindset of, of, oh, what do we have to avoid? Think about adding positive rather than avoiding negative. 
the adding of the positive stuff absolutely mitigates the negative stuff. People who had big numbers on the adverse childhood experiences scale, but also had solid numbers on the positive experience scale, those people did much better. And it wasn't subtle. The research was, they were pretty like, you know, like, look at that, right? This person had a whole lot of crap that went on, but then they had this, they had these positive things and the rates of depression and other problems with mental health were far lower. It's cool stuff. It's really about what we have to create, not what we have to avoid. So we did close the registration just this week for our parenting retreat at Canyon Ranch this fall. Like last year, though, we had a couple of last-minute people. So if you are one of those last-minute people, please register now because we will have to close it officially. And we did get notice that Canyon Ranch is requiring vaccination or negative test of all its guests, and that would apply to our attendees as well. Mm -hmm. That's good to know. Also, we did put out a course. It's for parents. And there's part of it is me talking about this stuff, just like I would do in a therapy session, given my information. There's also a part in which I'm talking directly to kids. So I would love families to watch it together. And so that's available right now too. Robin, what's the course called? How to Manage Anxiety in Children. So join the Facebook group so that you can ask Lynn your question on an upcoming episode. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Fluster Clucks. Bye, Robin. Bye, Lynn. If you're a parent, I invite you to join us at the Mindful Mama podcast, where it's all about becoming a less irritable, more joyful parent with sometimes hilarious and always thought-provoking experts and friends. At Mindful Mama, we know that you cannot give what you do not have. And when you have calm and peace within, then you can give it to your children. I'm Hunter Clark Fields, and I can't wait to see you there. Listen in to the Mindful Mama podcast.